Everybody and welcome to the Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. Dan, you out there? Hey, Brian, I'm here. Awesome. Good to check in with you week to week to talk about a movie. Spooky season for some has come to an end, but not for us yet, because the movie that I tossed on as our selection is The Nightmare Before Christmas from 1993. So this is the 30th anniversary believe it or not and i was hesitant at first to go beyond the bounds of december but dan said no don't worry this will work we can swing this because of the themes explored in the film now you just said beyond the bounds of december did you mean october or did you mean december for this because i think that's worthy of discussion oh i thought i said beyond the bounds of the month but i guess i was thinking ahead also sometimes i'm hesitant to assign a movie that everybody has seen and i'm pretty sure everybody our age at least has probably seen this one dan and what has been your experience with this movie well it's really interesting that you say that brian because this is one of those movies that was not a flop but not a big hit on its release but has subsequently become really iconic just a standard that everyone knows i saw a comparison somewhere that not quite to the same scale but this is a little bit like the wizard of oz from 1939 where you just kind of assume everybody always knew the movie you know but even at the time it was like a minor hit you know it was it wasn't the biggest deal and i actually did not see this movie in its entirety until the pandemic, like three years ago or something like that. Um, I had never seen it before, believe it or not. I had seen songs from it, clips from it, but I had not seen the whole thing. And um, now I think I've seen it three or four times because three of the past four years we've watched it, I think. So this is my third time watching it. So, yeah. Okay, so it really came into your life courtesy of the advent of Disney Plus. Pretty much, yeah. Well, and also just deliberately seeking out movies I had missed when the pandemic started, hence why this podcast started. Great point. So I was aware of this one pretty early on. I probably didn't see it when I was three, but probably like when I was five or six. And it's it's been with me for a long time. And I've always liked it, but never to the point of like wanting to base my life around it or anything. Uh, which seems like there's a certain subset of people who have almost done that. They, they like generate a lot of uh, hot topics income. Right, exactly. I was going to say the hot topic generation. This was Jack Skellington was a sex icon, basically. He was a big deal. That's right. Get like a backpack, an embroidered backpack or something. In past episodes, 
there have been certain adjectives and words that we've overused to describe a certain thing because it fits. There was one, Dan kept saying painterly, and then in the Halloween tree episode, I was saying evocative all the time. I feel like the key word with this one is that they kind of broke the mold after it came out. Like, it kind of has spiritual successors, but it's like his legacy, its legacy has kind of splintered. It's gone gone in different paths, all the people involved in this movie, and, and what have they done since. But it was like lightning in a bottle. You know, no no Nightmare Before Christmas 2, truly. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's like, when you start with this, what's your next step, you know? And I think there are different ways you could go with that. And I also don't think there's a thing that quite precedes this either. Right. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And this comes out of Disney, but they kind of took their name off of it at the start. They released it through their Touchstone Pictures label. But now that people have acknowledged that they like it now everywhere it's disney's nightmare before christmas which was not how it was originally treated disney's tim burton's the nightmare before christmas both of which are a bit misleading indeed although i feel like tim burton's spirit is in this absolutely yeah it's it's very much a tim burton project i listened to um, a couple of podcasts with crew members in the past week. And it was basically Tim, Henry, and Danny, which we will expand on each of those three people as like the main architects of the story. Right. So why I thought this would be a good pick for this time of year is that we're in sort of the inter-holiday mire period. Although they've already started the Christmas music on the radio. That creeps earlier and earlier every year. I mean, I guess with the streaming area, you can have Christmas music whenever you want, but... Right. It still feels like a, a touchstone. It's like a, a meaningful thing that maybe is becoming less meaningful. Right. When they throw the big switch mm -hmm. and the, the, the normal regular year music goes away. Something like eight years ago... I entered a pool that my dad organized and I think I don't even think there was like money involved. I think it was just like send him a prediction of what the first song played by 97.1. That's the local Christmas station. What was going to be the first Christmas song played by them? And I won the pool and my pick was it's the most wonderful time of the year by Andy Williams. Like multiple people predicted Mariah Carey couple others in there, but I was the only one that picked most wonderful time of the year. And that's what it was. Do you have a traditional first Christmas song? Well, I always pull the Muppets and John Denver, a Christmas together album out of the box first. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Great album. Solid listen all the way through. But on the radio, I think I tuned in one year to the official turnover time when it started every year i try to listen when it turns off which is usually midnight on christmas as we talked about recently it's like super abrupt but i think there was one time i listened when they turned it on which traditionally was the saturday before thanksgiving but now i think is the saturday before the saturday before thanksgiving okay 
so I, I've missed it the last few years. But the the one year that I actually heard them officially be like, this is the moment, they played this little custom intro to it that was like all these little snippets that were Washington-specific Christmas, like Christmas movies where they reference DC or something. Yeah. And I want that supercut, but I only ever heard it the one time, and I don't know who would possibly have it. I'd have to contact like an employee of the radio station. Oh, wow, yeah. There is the one song that probably gets more play here than anywhere else. Christmas Eve in Washington. I'm glad you know Christmas Eve on Washington. I love that one. They don't play that on the radio enough. America's hometown. I don't. Does anyone call DC America's hometown? I don't think so. Maybe that song. That's it. Mr. Jefferson's standing the midwatch, and tomorrow is Christmas Day. Classic. Tune into our Discord for some supplemental media if you don't live in Washington, D.C. One of my hot takes was always that Christmas Eve is a more enjoyable day than Christmas Day because it's kind of disappointing. I don't know. Maybe this is just me as an introvert, but like having to go to all these things, all these events on Christmas Day, like all of my extended families live in the area. So like the 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, it's just nonstop stuff and people that, you know, you kind of have to see and just kind of exhausting. But Christmas Eve is like all anticipation and you often don't have things the whole day on the 24th and you're still wrapping your gifts. And I always used to feel better on the 24th than on the 25th itself. So I'm glad that that song also honors the Christmas Eve feeling. I like that. Yeah, I, I think I kind of feel that same way. Also, I mean like the christmas music the christmas day i mean you've built to it for so long you got a lot of built-up anticipation and then it's gone exactly the anticipation is still building it peaks it crests but we have christmas still ahead we got plenty of time to talk about christmas just a little bit of time left before it expires to talk about halloween so nightmare before christmas originated as a poem written by tim burton in the early 80s when he was working as an animator for Disney. And he, I guess he scribbled this thing out and put it in a drawer. He was making short films that I guess were Disney funded at this point. I don't, I don't exactly know how he was doing this or he, maybe these were side projects. But one of them was Frankenweenie, which was a, a short film about a kid resurrecting his dog using Frankenstein methods. And another one was called Vincent, which I think came out in 1982 and was a stop motion short. And it's narrated by Vincent Price. And I've talked about it, I'm sure, a couple times here on the podcast. But having gone back and watched this now, I feel like I have some insight into tim burton's life story okay so we just watched this dan just now before we hit record i guess technically after we hit record it's just not going to be part of the episode but we were doing the the little zoom watch party and what did you think had you seen this before i'm pretty sure i had seen it before but i don't think i had seen it before when i really knew who vincent price was i've now seen a couple of vincent price movies and so the story in Vincent is that there's a little kid who lives in the suburbs, but his imagined life 
is consumed with thoughts of gothic horror. Basically, all the time he keeps lapsing into fantasies, this seven-year-old kid imagining himself in stories by Edgar Allan Poe or movies starring Vincent Price like House of Wax. And I just know that this was Tim Burton's childhood. Like, I can, I can see it here, and I can see it in Edward Scissorhands. Would it be too much of a projection for me to say this is also at least a little bit of Brian's childhood? Yes, that is also true. So, you guys know I've thrown on the Tim Burton movies hard and fast the last few months. Uh, I guess before that, about a year ago, we had Sleepy Hollow. But I do like Tim Burton. If there were a few more weeks to October, I would have had you watch Mars Attacks. I'll probably save that for next year. But broadly, I like his style. And I think his style is is pretty much just bringing back German expressionism. But it has a vibe for sure. I think there's a little more to it than just that. That's a big piece of it. There's like a certain cartoonish garishness to the imagery, too. Which is part of the reason I think Pee Wee was such a good fit, because he's got that cartoonishness to him. Great point. Because, I mean, there also is the clash of, like, suburbia and the tropes of suburbia and, like, how that can be garish, too. Absolutely. And so if you want the most autobiographical feature from him, I would say watch Edward Scissorhands. But Nightmare Before Christmas, though, carries on the tradition of... The stop motion. And it was right around this same time, 1982, that he was writing the Nightmare Before Christmas poem, which is a take on Night Before Christmas, obviously. So it's a poem. It rhymes. And it tells the story that we get in this film. So I think, Dan, you actually tracked down and listened to the poem for the first time recently, right? That's right. So there is a animated version of it that's done in like, I, I don't quite know what you call this style. It's like paper doll animation style where like it's mostly just pre-cut figures kind of moving around the screen and transforming just a little bit. So, you know, it's not like high budget animation or anything, but it kind of fits it pretty well. And honestly, I feel like I understood Nightmare Before Christmas better after I read the poem because I could go from point A to point B, which is easier from going from origin straight to point B to kind of fully understand the story. It's like I see how one thing built into another thing that built into another thing. And we can talk a little bit about that and like my thoughts on this story overall. But uh, it's narrated by Christopher Lee. Oh, wow. Very cool. And uh, I definitely recommend it. That is pretty cool. I heard it for the first time when I listened to the tribute album released officially through Disney, which is called Nightmare Revisited. And that might have been the like 20th anniversary okay. of the movie. But it's got covers of every song in the film, like even the instrumental stuff. They had different groups doing the instrumentals. But it has like This is Halloween by Marilyn Manson and Kidnap the Santa Claus by Korn. And... Uh, a lot of like big names and some of them are really good. I mean, sometimes you'll get the Marilyn Manson. This is Halloween pop up before the original. So hmm. this definitely got some replay and it opens 
with the intro of the poem that is in the movie, and it ends with the end of the poem, which isn't in the movie. Mm, okay. But yeah, I I see what you're saying, that it adds some context, and you kind of see where this thing originated. Because Tim Burton got fired from Disney in 1984. I think they sensed there was some, like, tonal mismatch. Like, this is this is not the Disney brand. Yet. <laughs> of course, you know, in 2012, they had him come back and make a feature-length version of Frankenweenie for the studio, so... And, and then what, he did the Dumbo remake, and he and Disney are cool again. That's right. One of the podcasts I listened to that I'm going to cite a couple of times was this. It was I had never heard of the podcast before I had tracked down this episode. They interview screenwriters about the writing process of movies. So they bring on to screenwriters of famous movies and talk about the movies, the writing process. And I think their their pitch is like, discussing the first draft of the movies you love or something like that. I need to get the name of it. I'll, I'll look it up in a second. But I listened to the episode with Caroline Thompson, who is the credited screenwriter for The Nightmare Before Christmas, although a lot of the movie was already written from the poem and then by Danny Elfman, who had written the lyrics prior to any of that screenplay getting written. So it's kind of interesting to imagine the songs all existing, but there'd be no other dialogue outside of it. But anyways, the reason I brought this up is the way that she described the relationship between Tim Burton and Disney is they were like viewed him as like the weird kid in the room. Like they, he made them uncomfortable and they're like, the stuff you're making is a little bit too dark and weird for our brand. Basically what you said, but just the image of Tim Burton being the weird kid in the room. I like that. Yeah, I've brought this up before, too, but I, I love there's a little clip of like John Lasseter on his first day at Disney walking around with a handheld camera in the animation studio. He's like, this is my first day coming in with the new class. And he's like walking through the cubicles and introducing people. And he says, and this is Tim Burton. And Tim Burton's like, <laughs> <laughs> like he recedes into his cubicle. But yeah. So, released from Disney in 1984, and what did he go on to do? He went over to Warner Brothers across the street. Or, you know, I, I think the Disney studio is a little more removed from the rest of them, but he went over to Warner Brothers, and he made Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And then, more notably, he made Beetlejuice right after that, and then the big one was Batman. Right, that was the big moneymaker. Right, but so he was... He went, a, he went over and was making big bucks for Warner Brothers. And Disney technically, I guess, owned the rights to Nightmare Before Christmas because he made this while in their employ, which to me sounds like uh, Thomas Edison or something, <laughs> like a holdover from earlier pre-union practices. But I guess they owned it. And they're like, hey, you want to develop this? And so Tim Burton did work on it some and I'd like to hear if you know much more about his involvement, because apparently he was at the same time directing Batman Returns. And so as much as people call this Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, like he was signing off on things. He didn't have his his hands on things all the time. And the director ended up being Henry Selleck, 
And as you said, Danny Elfman also had a lot of involvement writing all the songs and providing the singing voice, singing the songs also. Right. I mean, honestly, it's almost more of a Danny Elfman movie than anything else. Like, I I feel like you could go neck and neck with Danny Elfman's score and then the stop motion animation, which is Henry Selleck kind of taking some of the imagery from Tim Burton on there. So Henry Selleck has kind of become a brand name of his own for a while. I would say up until maybe like, I don't know, less than 10 years ago, about 10 years ago. The joke was that like Henry Selleck was the underappreciated unknown guy who was actually behind some of the great stop motion, particularly Nightmare Before Christmas and wasn't getting his due. But he's had a string of well-regarded hits and a bit of a revival just like in people recognizing him like he had a creepy stop-motion movie come out last year it was called like Wendell and Wild or something like that I watched the first 15 minutes and it didn't hook me but I'll, I'll probably catch up with it at some point um, and then of course his masterpiece other than potentially Nightmare Before Christmas is Coraline from 2009 And I remember when Coraline came out, all the posters said, from the director of Nightmare Before Christmas, without saying his name. Yeah, it didn't say from Henry Selleck. (laughs) They want you to think it's Tim Burton. I think at this point, you could say by Henry Selleck. You might still need to add some clarifiers, but I think his recognition has gone up. And yeah, I see the tendrils of this movie. Like if there are spiritual successors, there's there's a couple candidates. Uh, Some of it in Coraline... Some of it in Selleck's film that followed up Nightmare Before Christmas, which was the James and the Giant Peach movie. But then another one is Corpse Bride, which I hadn't seen until just a couple days ago. That was the one I watched to do my research. And who made that? So that was directed by Tim Burton, actually. Okay. But Henry Selleck was involved in the animation. Mm. And it was for Laika, but before Laika was making their own features. Oh, interesting. So it was like animation by Leica, but released by like Universal or something. That's probably wrong. It could have been Warner Brothers. I got to check. But that was in like 2006. And then Coraline was the first official Leica feature, which was 2009. Right. And that's L-A-I-K-A, Leica. They, they've done some of the most regarded stop-mo pictures of the last 20 years, last 15 years. Yeah, well, they're basically the only stop motion studio except like Ardman in England. Hmm. And I was reading up on the history. Apparently Leica is the modern day incarnation of the old Will Vinton studio, which is the studio that did like the California raisins and the claymation Christmas. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's wild. It makes sense. Yeah. That's funny. I, one thing that I like about, Nightmare Before Christmas that I think ties together some of the things you've mentioned is that I think stop motion is perfect for creepy stories, not scary stories, but creepy stories, because there's a slight uncanniness to stop motion and like a a rigidity that feels just slightly inhuman that I think works so well for for creepy stories. Coraline, Nightmare. I haven't seen Paranorman, but that people say the same thing about that. Yeah. I liked Paranorman. I thought of the three Halloween movies that came out in rapid succession in 2012 from Animation Studios, that was the best one. Second was Hotel Transylvania. Third was the Frankenweenie movie. Oh, you weren't a fan of Frankenweenie. 
it was fine. I think the short is better. Okay. Last year, it's interesting you said that's the only other studio. I haven't done my research in advance, but I did watch two stop motion movies from last year that are not Leica and I don't aren't Ardman either. One was called The House that was released on Netflix, and that's an anthology of three stories. And that one's really good. And then the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio from last year was also stop motion. And that was terrific. Oh, great point. That was in my top 20 of the year for sure. And both are kind of creepy. So, you know, (laughs) that's true. I need to broaden my horizons. I think Leica has a big presence in the in the sphere. Oh, yeah, definitely. And one more thing for the past two years, Disney has collaborated with the studio that did Robot Chicken. The name of the studio, it's like Stupid Dude Studios or something. It's got some goofy name like that. But the studio that did the Robot Chicken show to do a Mickey Mouse special. So they did a Christmas one last year that I thought was mediocre. And then this year they did a Halloween one where a witch turns the Mickey characters into their costumes, like in um, Halloween Town 2. And I thought it was much better. I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. So, yeah, stop motion revival. It's, it's at least a little bit of a thing. Yeah, it's still with us. Almost more maybe than it was in 1993. You know, like nothing looked like this at the time. I I, or and it it just didn't really grab grab on and and persist. Uh, It doesn't seem like it just really feels sui generis. That's a good word for it. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about what this movie is, the plot. And as I said, I know a lot of listeners, you've probably seen it before, but I do want to get into the nitty gritty at some part. So we got to take the ride. So in the world of Nightmare Before Christmas, holidays are created by the inhabitants of these realms that are sealed inside trees with seasonal doors on the trunks of the trees. So when we open, we get this little poetic introduction showing this copse of trees that has the holiday doors. So there's an Easter egg door and there's a Christmas tree door and there's a heart door and a turkey door. And the narrator says, you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun, which is terrible grammar. (laughs) That's not the way to say that sentence. There's at least one grammar error and arguably two grammar errors because they ended the first sentence with a preposition. So to revise that, you you might want to say, you've probably wondered from where holidays come. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you began. Well, that's just not quite so poetic, Brian. It doesn't have the rhythm or the rhyme. To be to be fair, from and begun don't rhyme either, so... Yeah, slight rhyme, yeah. Yeah. So in the poem, there are only three doorways, but I like that in the movie we see it's like five or six. And I feel like you could have kept panning and there would have been even more, you know? It's like, is there an Arbor Day door, a tree on a tree? Have you ever seen Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby? No. Okay, well, you should watch that one. It's the namesake of the hotel chain. But they, in that movie, have a hotel that they're only going to open on holidays and everybody can come and stay there on holidays and... I hope I'm not getting it mixed up. It might be Gene Kelly. 
I should look it up. Who is actually the star? I think Bing Crosby is in it, though. I think that's the White Christmas movie, right? Yeah, it's where he sings White Christmas. So, yes, Bing Crosby is in it. And I think the other guy is Gene Kelly and they're fighting over a woman. But there's lots of dance numbers. And so each holiday that they do, they have a, a dance number. And there's more holidays than you would think. <laughs> they're like, OK, we'll open on Washington's birthday and we'll open on Lincoln's birthday. Oh, it's man. Like those are like four days apart. And now we just do President's Day. Yeah, we've streamlined that one. I, I recommend it. Didn't that one have blackface in it? Am I getting it? Does okay. <laughs> it's on the Abraham Lincoln's birthday, you get him in blackface. Oh boy, oof. <laughs> but moving on, the tree that we dive into in Nightmare Before Christmas is Halloween. So the Halloween door creaks open, and here we are inside another Halloween tree, and we get the awesome opening number. This is Halloween. So tell us a little bit about what we're seeing here, Danny. I'm sure a lot of listeners know, but what are what are some things that jump out at you? Well, this is this is a masterpiece moment of this film. Genuinely awe-inspiring. It's like the first time I watched this, my mouth was open like a gape, like, holy cow, there's just it's overflowing with creepy imagery. Like there's all the denizens of Halloween town are like monsters, but they're not like just the stereotype monsters they have some twist or some exaggerated design so you could like stop any frame and look at like all the stuff that's going on and it like cuts from weird image to weird image and again it's not the images you've seen a hundred times before necessarily you know like there's a creepy clown but he's the clown with the tearaway face okay that's like a new layer that makes it extra fresh and extra creepy you know and our introduction to jack is at first, he doesn't look like the Jack Skellington that we know. He's got like more stuff on and like a whole pumpkin on his head. He's like a scarecrow type, like a, a burning offering from uh, some pagan festival or something. And he swallows a torch like a performer and his whole body lights up. And then he dives into this bucket of green goo and he emerges very slowly like Venus or something out of the water. And he's the Jack Skellington that we know. And it's absolutely terrific. Like torch lit, overflowing black, but just really cool kind of compositions and uh, designs in it. Yeah, The design of this world is great. No right angles. Everything's either pointy or curvy and really cool colors where... There's, yeah, lots of blacks and grays, but orange, and there's the green slime coming out of the fountain. And it's a mix because there's, like, 2D animation in the works, too, because there's, like, ghosts that come out that are little cartoon ghosts. And the camera keeps moving. It's like a big parade. Really neat. Great way to open the film. Do you have any, I'll say, minor creatures, so not one of, like, the main characters that you always look for and you always latch on to? My favorite guy is the guy who has the 360 degree mouth. That's what that was going to be my guess is the mayor of Halloween Town. He's a good pick. Wait, no, he's different. Oh, so th there's the mayor. The mayor has the rotating head where it can go from happy to angry. So what did you what did you say? What part flips around? He has a 360 degree mouth. Oh, so like his teeth opens, but it's like goes all the way around his head. And there's just like tissue in the middle when his mouth opens. Okay, well, 
I was either going to pick that guy that you're talking about or the mayor. So we'll we covered them both. Okay. But yeah, there's like a creature from the Black Lagoon. There's a wolf man, the clown that you mentioned. There's like a devil guy. A lot of them get verses in the, you know, stanzas in the song. So I'm the thing living under your stairs, fingers like snakes and spiders in my hair. And they get like little tableaus in the song. And that's also when they first show Oogie Boogie is he's just the shadow on the moon at night, filling your dreams to the brim with fright. So yeah, quick glimpses of all the key characters, like Sally's in this sequence. Everybody that we're going to get to know a little more. Yeah, do you have thoughts on the music overall? We can, like, check in on specific songs. Yeah, I definitely do. So it's a musical for sure, but it's different as a musical than your typical Disney film of the era. So when you think about Beauty and the Beast, you think about Little Mermaid, really any of them, even to to date, you know, what, what you have is you have a movie where... Every like eight minutes or something, a song comes, but otherwise it's spoken word. So it's like perfect for a soundtrack. It's like you have characters talking and then, oh, they break out into song for a three to five minute song and then eight minutes without a song and then they sing again. This is different. This is sung through not 100 percent entirely, but I would have to guess more than 50 percent, maybe even like bordering on three quarters. It's just like nonstop singing along and if i had to describe the format or name the format i would call it probably a, a cantata which is like a smaller opera where different parts are sung through but like the sung through parts aren't designed to be like intensely tuneful like you're not going to remember exactly the way that he sings some of the lines in between, like in these, this, uh, the sung part, the sung through part. Now it does have numbers. So like it has like, this is Halloween and some of the other songs we'll talk about that you can just hit play on that. But it's, it's unique in that like the stuff between the numbers is sung through as well. And it really makes it feel like more operatic and dramatic. I find the fact that so much of it is sung and it's not just dialogue number, dialogue number. For sure. That really struck me watching it this time, just how much of the runtime is songs, because there's a lot of songs and the movie is not very long. Yeah, it's like 71 minutes or something like that. I also have some questions about the logistics of uh, this is Halloween and the Halloween world. So ostensibly, when the movie begins, it is Halloween. It's October 31st. And so Jack Skellington, he's like the big celebrity of the town. He leads their their performance, their production of this holiday, which Halloween Town produces or stage manages Halloween for the world. Except we don't see any normal humans experiencing Halloween happening, which is different from when we see Christmas happen later in the movie. So I, I find that kind of curious. It's a good point. The actual purpose and functioning of Halloween Town is not especially clarified. It's like, I don't know, I guess if you're thinking about it from like a child perspective, Santa Claus comes and delivers toys. And also when you go out and about, everything is Christmassy. Things are decorated as Christmas. Now, like 
we as grownups can see a fine line between a thing that's intentionally mystical storytelling for the kids and the things that are just adults doing decorations. But when you're a kid, you might not know that. So like my take on this has been like Halloween town is responsible for the Halloween feeling when you're a kid of like what's going on around town, the decorations, the fact that everyone knows you dress up and you can ring on doorbells and stuff. That's Halloween magic when you don't quite know how the whole grown up world works. Yeah, I think that's what we're supposed to understand is that like when this is Halloween is happening is it's like they're parading through the world, but it complicates it because like we see trick or treaters in Halloween town who are children, except they take off their masks and they're they're not normal kids. They're like little monsters still even behind the mask. So even the trick-or-treaters are like part of the permanent residence, which is just a little different from what we eventually get with Christmas. Agreed. And if that didn't convince you, I really want to get into the nitty-gritty on certain certain things to do with this movie, because I've seen it a lot of times, and I've thought more about it as I've gone along. After the celebration, though, after they wrap up Halloween festivities, Jack sneaks away from the community he goes off alone and he soliloquizes operatically as you said and the theme of his musings is that he's spinning his wheels creatively he's sick of being the one note guy like his eponym is the pumpkin king and he's he's thinking is this all i ever want to be so this is one of those songs it's called jack's lament that like you said, is kind of like an in-between song and you don't necessarily remember the tune, but it's got some good lines and is kind of the I want song because he says, there are few who deny at what I do. I am the best for my talents are renowned far and wide. When it comes to surprises in the moonlit night, I excel without ever even trying. Basically, this comes naturally to him. This is what everybody expects from him, and he's starting to no longer find that fulfilling. It reminded me... I've watched this documentary that's called Bones Brigade. It's about Tony Hawk and the origins of pro skating in the 90s. Okay. And it's a really good documentary because, like, everybody knows Tony Hawk, but I feel like we probably definitely don't know the other skaters in the crew as well not as well i might know some of the names from playing tony hawk's pro skater as a kid but in that documentary he said something about how there was a period where tony hawk felt burned out because he would go to all these skating tournaments and win the skating tournament but that if you just win and win and win people start to expect it from you that you're going to win and that I got to sh share this clip, too, in our discussion board on the Discord. But it was something like, well, if I win, nobody's surprised. And if I don't win, people are disappointed. And I'm just got to a point where that was taxing on me. I mean, this is a, definitely a thing. If you ever follow sports, it's it's like surprisingly uncommon for teams to repeat as champions even though they have like the same talent and they're still the best team it's very uncommon for them to win two times in a row it happens of course but part of the reason is 
they say that there's a, a strong psychological element of like when you're not the best, when you're not the champion, when you're not the greatest, you got the hunger, you got the goal, you got the vision, you got the desire, and then you get it. And now what do you go? What's the motivation now? I, I reached the goal. Okay. Is this it? What do I do next? You know, not necessarily to cheapen the value of becoming the best and the hard work you got there, but like there's a certain amount of letdown and psychological toll to sustaining greatness. So that's what he's dealing with here. And Jack wanders off out of the town, out through the forest on through the night until he comes to this grouping of the holiday trees. Except, Dan, he doesn't climb up out of the Halloween tree. In the opening of the movie, it showed, like, all the trees right next to each other. So how did he... I, I don't understand the physical structure of Halloween Town and how it works, and I want to know more. Right, because you'd think in Halloween Town... He steps out of Halloween Town. So like, that's a door or a gateway or something. And then there's like a portal dimension or something. That's what I would think is he'd have to come out of the tree. Yeah, but you're right. He just goes, I don't know, maybe it's like a train station situation or something like that. But then what do we see at the beginning kind of contradicts that. I don't know. But one more thing before we totally move past the Jack's Lament section is that has the really famous image of like the curled up mountain it's against this huge moon that kind of provides like a backlight to him. And then it like un it's curled and it uncurls into like a slope that he can walk down. And that's my favorite image in the whole uh, movie. I think it's uh, a terrific visual. It is really interesting, visually compelling, extremely like Burtony. And it's definitely the cover of the DVD that I have. I'm sure it's probably the poster and yeah that i mean even just the spiral hill before it does anything is evocative and then you find out that it has this action that it can do where it's like a weird octopus thing and yeah very creepy weird animal like almost like a piece of coral or something or an anemone but Jack is here by the holiday trees and he's walking by the heart and the turkey and all of that. And he comes to the Christmas tree, which is a jar and and sucks him into this portal dimension, as you said. And he falls down into Christmas town. The whole rest of the movie is essentially the allegory of the cave. Where are you familiar with the allegory of the cave, Dan? A little bit. But why don't you tell us about it, Brian? Okay, so the allegory of the cave, I think it was Plato. Any classics mages, if you want to correct me and say, no, it was really Socrates, go ahead and do so. But I think it was Plato. And he imagined a world in which people were chained down in a cave and all they see all day is like scenes that are shadows of the world outside because they're like chained facing the back wall and so all the time they're seeing this like shadow play puppet show on the wall. And because that's all their senses are taking in, that's their reality. But what if somebody got out of the chains one day and they got outside the cave and they saw the real world and then were able to come back? Would the people in the cave even be able to understand 
the new things that the person who went out has perceived. This same plot is also in the book Flatland, if you've ever read that, which was a world of two-dimensional characters, and one gets picked up by a three-dimensional person and suddenly can see up and down and left and right, and then they get plopped back down into their Flatland. But now Jack gets to experience an entirely different world. This mesmerizing Christmas verse. And then ultimately is going to struggle trying to spread the things he's learned or thinks he's learned to his friends and neighbors back home. So what's different in this Christmas space, Dan? Well, I think... If you think of the Halloween aesthetic and you think of the Christmas aesthetic, you can kind of envision what the difference is. So first is the color scheme and the lighting. So instead of orange and black with green, you have blue with bright red and green lights. And the images are very different. It's like a a North Pole type place with gently sloping mounds of snow and trains that are candy cane colored and a big Christmas tree in the middle of town. And it's almost like a a punchline because when you see it, you're like, okay, this is like the North pole. This is like a, a Christmas town that you use to decorate your dining room table during Christmas season, or at least your grandma had one of these uh, Christmas towns that that would, that would light up And so now you're like, okay, this kind of recontextualizes Halloween town, which like we don't really have that quite so much as a concept as like the Christmas town. But you're like, okay, that's the Halloween version of the thing that we kind of understand already. At least that's how I kind of read it, because the Christmas imagery is just much more familiar. And I think that plays in with what you were saying about how, like, we kind of get the idea of Christmas magic much more than we get the idea of Halloween magic, at least like in a widespread cultural way in terms of like, what is the magic being spread around the world? Right, right. So Halloween towns like the Halloween North Pole and Jack Skellington is the Santa. But now Jack is feeling a way to fill his need. He sees the wonders of Christmas town. Yeah, there's snow. A great line from the song at this point is, There's people throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. (laughs) I like to imagine like a a shrunken head fight in Halloween town. (laughs) So it's a paradigm shift. Jack sees an opportunity to go back and disrupt the, the way things are in Halloween town. So he goes back to his home. He like takes a snowmobile from Christmas town. And he's got all these sacks of Christmas trappings to proselytize to the people back home and and share what he's learned as he's traveled outside the allegorical cave. So Jack throws this big town council, town hall meeting where he's talking about what he's seen in Christmas town. And this scene didn't really phase me early on watching this movie, but I find it like more important every time that I watch it because this is Jack's pitch deck. This is him trying to get his creative project greenlit. And I I feel like it's pretty crucial. 
I think even more than that, or in addition to that, let's say, is it's this concept of like trying to explain a new paradigm to a very stodgy, stuck in their ways group and the challenges of that. Definitely. So I think there's a couple ways that we can interpret the way Jack acts here and what ultimately happens as the story continues. But my read is that I think Jack genuinely gets Christmas. Like I think in that moment, being in that space, he understood Christmas magic, like the, the warmth and the cheer. And what does Lucy say in the peanuts Christmas? Fa la 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 and all that jazz or something. <laughs> right. And presents to pretty girls. Like, I think Jack understands the spirit, but he's getting frustrated when his friends can't understand what he sees in this vision. And so he ultimately shifts his pitch into terms that they do understand. Interesting. Like, he, he gets to the part where he's talking about Santa Claus, and he describes him as like a monster. So I think there's a couple ways to interpret that. Is is that actually how Jack sees Santa Claus? Or is that how he's packaging Santa Claus to make him like accessible to the Halloween Town residents? So I definitely feel more like I think it's a little bit of both, maybe, but I definitely feel like it's more how he's taking Christmas and squeezing it into his worldview. So he like kind of gets it, but he also like needs to filter it through halloween creepiness and it's not just like a show like he's like oh i'll make it look halloweeny so they get it but that's kind of how he has to see it too at least that's what i think interesting because then he goes on to subsequently like follow that vision of it when he's working on it and we like see him lying in bed reading christmas books and not quite getting it and like tossing the book to the side so he's like almost there but not quite there he's still got the the halloween jack skellington feeling to it okay yeah i, I think i can buy that and so as I've watched the movie over and over, you know, once every year or so, I wonder what's the moral that we should be taking away? This is interrogating themes of should an artist stay in his lane creatively? And so Dan and I have talked a few times. I don't know if it's been on the podcast or not, but like, should an artist be defined by their most characteristic work or the experimental work that they did where they kind of push the envelope is that them or is the things that the masses know is that the artist's persona i have complicated feelings about this and i feel like the movie is not entirely successful i think where the movie falls apart is if you think about it too much in this lens because <laughs> to me it I don't quite get what the moral is because it does kind of seem like if you're trying to like make it more thematic and allegorical, it's like exactly what you said. It's like Jack Sally knows Jack is a dingus for trying to do Christmas. Like, you know, dude, you don't do Christmas. You're going to screw it up. Don't do that. If you want to put a more generous reading on it, which we'll get there towards the end, we do get a blend of the two in a positive way. But it's almost like a token, like, OK, you can have a little bit of Christmas spirit. One thing that unlocked for me when I was listening to the poem, watching the little animated clip of the poem, is the poem puts it in terms that make a lot more sense to me, which is that 
it works more as a parable about depression and like not connecting with happiness and like cheer in this world and like reaching out and trying to get that and making things messy, but still like ultimately being slightly better off for trying to bring some light to your world and the world of those around you, even if you make a big mess along the way. That to me is a little bit more of like a compelling through line, but it seems like, and I think a lot, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that a lot of this came from Danny Elfman and the way that he wrote the score is like really emphasizing the creative malaise aspect of it. And then kind of mashing that with the story about depression that was already there and like screwing things up. And when you kind of mash those together, to me, I, I don't know quite what to take away from it. I mean, I don't, I don't think you need to take anything away from it because I think it's like a a mood piece. And I think it works terrifically as a mood piece, but I don't like to think too much more about it because it doesn't quite click for me unless you like really want to bring in some extra film text or like read beyond it because you could also read it as like a cultural appropriation type of tale and like how do you do that i don't think that's what the movie is necessarily going for and so i don't like to project too much of that but i don't think it detracts overall from the the feeling of the film all great points yeah i watched an interview with danny elfman and he said something like writing the songs for this movie was really easy because i just said the things i was thinking about Makes sense, yeah. Like, yeah, th this was just his his thoughts on the creative process and feeling stymied, feeling like he was in a rut. The read that I've kind of formed, which is not the comprehensive, authoritative read, because it's a little inconsistent, as you say. But the the one way that I've interpreted it is this is what happens if you compromise your vision just to get a project made. Like, if you're just working with the tools that you have because you, you need to get something made, you know, you may not get all the way to your vision and it could come out kind of wonky. But kind of, by necessity, we'll have to, you know? Right, right. It's like a cynical view, almost. Mm-hmm. It's almost like stay in your lane. I don't know, is it? Because... It seems to be the takeaway is like Jack shouldn't have been ever been Santa Claus. He shouldn't have ever tried to Christmasify stuff because he just made things bad for everyone who normally would have been serviced by Christmas, you know? Mm hmm. <laughs> serviced by Christmas. That's that's what they that's the poster they put outside <laughs> the Victoria's Secret in December. Oh, OK. <laughs> so Jack is gearing up for Christmas He's on board and he's winning converts in this twisted way, appealing to the Halloween Town citizens to get on board and help make his his new vision. And Sally comes into it more prominently at this point, who is the female lead of the movie. She's like a ragdoll, a Frankenstein monster type creation made by a mad scientist in the town. One bit of insight on Sally is that one thing I learned from that podcast I mentioned, which, by the way, it's called Script Apart. Sorry, I listened to the episode with Caroline Thompson, who's the screenwriter. And apparently the story was like she got hired 
basically after the entire score was written. She was actually dating Danny Elfman at the time, so knew a lot about what was going on with the project, but wasn't working on it, despite the fact that she had professional connections to Tim Burton, too. I think she had worked on some of his films in the past. And anyways, eventually, it wasn't even Tim Burton that hired her. It was Disney who reached out to her and said, hey, we need more writing for this film. We just have a score. We don't have a script. And so she had to basically take the score and fill in the gaps. And she actually came up with the idea of Sally. She felt like it needed like a clever woman character in there. And so that's why Sally has, I don't think she sings at all. And if she does, it's very little. And even the doctor doesn't sing very much either. Um, I don't know if he was also invented. Presumably he was because his main role is to be like the, the one in charge of Sally. But that was actually something that was added late in the story, like after the music had written. And when you start to hear these things, you kind of start to see how they don't perfectly all fit together within the movie. And like when you go from A to it's like, oh, it was a poem. Oh, and then it was a Danny Elfman score. Oh, and then it was a script after that. You can see why the story itself is kind of ragged and, and honestly kind of slight. Like there's just not all that much meat to the story itself. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, Sally pops up kind of in between the songs, although she does get a prominent one. It's called Sally's Song. Okay. Maybe indicating it's her only one, but that's the, I sense there's something in the wind. Oh, that's right. That yeah. feels like tragedies at hand. Good cover of that on Nightmare Revisited, but... Yeah, Sally is, like, clever, as you said, makes things. She's a tailor uh, by necessity because she has to keep putting her body back together. She's always falling apart. And she always has a plan. She's always thinking of what her next move is going to be. She also has a crush on Jack, which for most of the movie she fears is unrequited. But I got to say, Sally, don't sell yourself short. Because you're literally the only girl in the town. <laughs> Other than there's, like, the older mom character who, like, leads the fat boy around on the leash. And there's the little girl trick-or-treater. But that's it. There's, like, a couple of witches, too. Yeah. You got no competition. I listened to about half of the Blank Check podcast episode on this. And they opened the movie by saying... The reason this movie works is because Jack and Sally are both hot. That's why people like to watch this movie. <laughs> well, I think you could say that of a lot of movies, Dan. I think the Hollywood studio system exists because people want to watch hot people. Well, it's much more of a strange thing to say in Nightmare Before Christmas than like, I don't know, Ghosted featuring Anadair Moss or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I saw a clickbaity headline to the effect of Disney wanted this major change to Jack Skellington. And then you click it and it says they wanted him to have eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you know, most Disney characters have eyeballs. Harder to make an expressive character without them. Although he is able to like flex his sockets so he can still make expressions even though he's all bones mm -hmm. another thing they said on a podcast they were debating whether this was the 
boniest movie ever made. <laughs> there any movie with more bones in it? Like, there's a lot of bones in this movie. There really is. <laughs> what was their verdict? I don't see a whole lot of competition. Yeah, they they said yes, but they were like talking about movies like The Bone Collector, which really doesn't have that many bones in it, or like the TV show Bones, which again, that's like the I think that is that the name of the character in in Bones. I think so. Yeah, you'd watch that one expecting bones and you'd be disappointed. <laughs> and of course you get some innuendos in there too. Mm-hmm. Well, they call him Bone Daddy at one point. <laughs> which I think I've definitely heard reappropriated. That would be a good rapper name. Do you have like if you were a rapper, what your rapper name would be? Oh man, I don't have one ready to go. I do think if you did like an Edgar Allan Poe rap album, you could call it Rapping at My Chamber Door. Oh, that's good. I like that. But what have you got? Mine would be Yucky Beans. That would be my rapper name. <laughs> is, is that something your kid came up with? Yeah, it was. A, there was some some uh, rotting beans in the Tupperware in our fridge. And someone said, they're the Yucky Beans. And I was like, oh, rapper name, calling it right now. That's mine. I got it. <laughs> That almost feels like an old blues musician name. Okay, yeah. Blind Lemon Johnson or something. <laughs> Yucky Beans walked out to the crossroads and sold his soul <laughs> for the ability to play the guitar. To be the bone daddy, yeah. Jack sequesters himself away in a tower and studies all the Christmas stuff, as you said. He's got, like, holly berries under a microscope and... I like when he goes to cut the paper snowflake and as as much as he tries, it always comes out as like a spider web. Mm -hmm. Like he can never quite get there. He can't ever quite replicate it. But while he's doing this intense cramming session and, and studying, he has an epiphany, which I guess he hadn't had already. Maybe he was just trying to bring some Christmas to Halloween town, but now he decides, no, I'm going to take over the the real deal full Christmas. I'm going to oust Santa and I'm going to take his gig. So he recruits the trick-or-treater children, one of whom is played by Paul Rubens from Pee Wee. And he sends them out. He gives them the directions to the Christmas tree and he says, go kidnap Santa Claus. This is where we get what has become my favorite song in the whole movie. Which is Kidnap the Sandy Claus. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, it is sung by... <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. I, I have this cold. It's like when your four-year-old comes home from preschool and she has like a little bit of a sniffle. You're like, well, there goes the, my next two and a half weeks. Like, she's going to have a cold. Then I'm going to have a cold. Then my wife's going to have a cold. My other kid's going to have a cold. It's going to be miserable. And we're kind of on at the crest of that right now. But <clears throat> so the, these three sort of impish kids, Locks, Shock and Barrel, and believe it or not, they're actually in the poem. I would have bet money that they had been invented for the film, but it actually meant I don't think it mentions their names. I can't remember, but they are in the poem. But Jack basically delegates them to go and kidnap Santa Claus. And so they're singing about how they're going to go kidnap the Santa Claus and all the things they're going to do to him, like these kind of uh, 
prankish, cruel things they're going to do in addition to kidnapping him. Jack just wants Santa Claus like out of the picture, but they're like imagining this demented thing they're going to do. All these demented things they're going to do to him when they kidnap him. To the point of like shooting him with a cannon. Yeah. And there's lines, no, if you blast him to smithereens, we could lose some pieces. So more graphic than your standard Disney fare. Yeah, the one that my six-year-old latched onto is kidnap the Sandy Claus, throw him in a box, bury him for 90 years, then see if he talks. We get to like bury him alive and let him suffocate for 90 years. Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's intense. I've also seen subsequently there have been some live covers of this song where the cast sang it the original three actors and then a version where it's um danny elfman instead of paul rubens i think i believe the last performance that paul rubens ever did live was him weird al and danny elfman singing this song okay that was it it was you showed me that version and then i had seen the version where it was the original three actors it, it's a complicated song there's a lot of like patter singing where they're describing these dense things that they're going to do. It's it's almost like a Wile E. Coyote cartoon being described. Like, hit him with an anvil. And it's a little bit more harmonically complex because it's like a trio, and they're singing, like, different chords as they go along, but at, like, this really fast clip because you, you're, like you said, it's patter style of, like, all these describing these ridiculous things. And they're going along in this clawfoot bathtub that can walk which is a cool vehicle. So, th yeah, they go off and to get Santa Claus, get him out of the picture. Meanwhile, Jack leads the rest of the town in creating his vision of Christmas as best they can. And they sing a song called Making Christmas, which is one that I like a lot, where they've got this, like, assembly line, and they're hammering together all these monster toys and making the sleigh out of a coffin and the skeleton reindeer. And it's like a very menacing Christmas carol. And they're going, making Christmas, making Christmas, na na na. And a highly mobile camera again, just flying through all these different scenes of all the things they're putting together. And Jack is like coaching them and encouraging them. This, watching it this time, reminded me of Ed Wood which was the movie that Tim Burton made the next year, where you've got this visionary director who's coaching, like, people who he essentially just found on the street or whatever. You know, not professionals, just his friends, and, and, and trying to get him through this creative project that maybe he doesn't even fully understand. That's a really good connection. And speaking of Ed Wood, I actually saw a ton of Ed Wood in Vincent. It's it's got a similar thing of a someone who doesn't see the world the same way, but like with this really arch black and white visual style. Right. They're both in black and white. So certainly a through line to Tim Burton's work where it's like, oh, I see. I OK, I get it. You got to You got this is your your bill of fare. This is your 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 usual modus operandi. And I like it. Broadly, I like it. The one Halloween Town resident who is reluctant is Sally. She has this vision of Jack going down in flames 
It's the only time in the movie when she has a vision. If she has this ability, they probably should have like established that or had her mention that she sometimes sees things. Yeah, it's a little undercooked, I agree. Yeah, what's kind of established is, okay, so she can make things, and she can plan plans, and so then Jack comes to her, I need a Santa suit, and you know how to make things, so you could do that. And it's like, okay, that's a setup and a payoff. Whereas I don't really feel like the vision that she has is in there organically. But she warns Jack, don't go and do this. Don't go to the theater, Lincoln. Don't get on the Titanic. But... He's going to go ahead and do it anyway. He's going to make his Christmas and have it too. So the Halloween residents throw their Christmas plan into action. And Jack flies out into the human world to deliver the Santa gifts. And so now we're seeing real people. So again, it's like, well, how did he do Halloween before? Was he, does he not go into the human world? I I need to know. I'm never going to get an answer. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's it's a byproduct of the weird mishmash of writing that the led to the production of this. And the world building is not especially coherent. Jack is delivering the toys to the human children and we get some pretty funny scenes. I like this little act of the movie where the kids are opening the terrifying toys and there's like a monster wreath and a stalking snake just crazy visuals and now everyone is panicking and it's like on the nightly news that Christmas horrors are unfolding. It really struck me this time that he's like an inverse Grinch. It's like Grinch wants to make people angry and then he ultimately ends up making them happy by the end. Whereas Jack wants to make people happy and he just ends up ruining their Christmas. There's a moment I really liked when Jack first goes to Christmas Town and he's sneaking around, like experiencing the wonder and the merriment. But like just him being there is like creeping people out and throwing them off, like just being near him, even if they don't really realize that he's there. People are like breathing heavily and and looking around like they know something's wrong. And it's completely unintentional on his part, but he just carries this air with him of he's the Halloween guy. Exactly. In Halloween Town, Sally tries to rescue Santa because the trick-or-treaters secretly work for the Boogeyman, who is our villain, who is honestly doesn't have a whole lot of runtime on screen, but he has this lair like down underneath the town. It reminded me of The Princess and the Frog, one of the last hand-drawn animated Disney movies. The villain in that character has some similar aesthetic things where it's like voodoo Southern vibes. And one of the things I learned in the the podcast with Caroline Thompson, the, the writer, is that there was not a lot of consensus that Oogie Boogie should even be included. They were mostly trying to get it out to feature length. Because if you like Oogie Boogie basically does nothing. It's just like you could just have Santa Claus like clocked on the head and knocked out and then he wakes up and like the movie would basically be the same thing. You know, you might not get quite so much depth on Sally. And there has been some backlash on Oogie Boogie as being like a, a minstrel racist type black caricature character. Well, he's like the one black person in the movie. And his head 
like resembles a KKK hood is another element to it. And apparently I doubt this was intentional, but apparently Oogie Boogie can sometimes be like a slur, which I had never heard before. But I mean, apparently that's a thing. And she claims that she tried to get them to cut Oogie Boogie. Both Jack and Henry, despite like her saying, bringing it up multiple times, said, you're being too sensitive. No one's going to care about that. He's a cool character. Let's include him. And I can honestly see it both ways. Like, it's like you're kind of it's a stew of a whole bunch of different images and ideas of of spookiness. And I think like, yeah, you do kind of inadvertently get some racially touched stuff on the one character who's like the sloppy villain character, you know, and that kind of doesn't look well. But I don't think it's it's not like deliberately racist or pejorative or anything like that. Right. He's like pretty abstract. He's made out of a burlap sack. And the aesthetics of his lair are awesome because it's all black light suddenly. Everything is these fluorescent greens and oranges and purples illuminated with the black light. And just doing that in stop motion must have been so cool. Yeah, it looks really cool. I love the those bright colors because like he's kind of his color is like he's just a burlap sack looking guy. But when you have all these weird colors and he in particular has like the sort of uncanny rigid movement that's just so fascinating to look at. And when you have these different lights with that movement on the kind of the textured but not colored surface, it just looks so awesome during this song. He's got Santa trapped down in this like casino, black light casino that he has. And Sally goes down to try to rescue Santa, but just ends up getting trapped herself. So then back in Jack's Christmas Gone Wrong, the military goes after him and literally shoots him out of the sky with a missile. And so he falls down in a fireball and lands crumpled, smoldering in a cemetery. And he basically has another soliloquy song where... He says, there's no place like home. He embraces his niche from before. He says, that's right. I am the Pumpkin King. Which, the same thing as there's no place like home. It feels like a little bit of a letdown. It's like, is that really our our takeaway? I mean, it's a little different in Wizard of Oz because Oz is clearly, like, way cooler than Kansas. <laughs> Here, I think there's there's pros and cons to both Christmas and Halloween. And I feel like that could have carried a little bit more in the writing. It's like, there's a place for both of them. That could have been a takeaway. That's like Inside Out. You need happiness and sadness. You need dark decay, spooky holidays, and cheerful, bright gift-giving holidays. But Jack races home and is able to battle Oogie Boogie and save Santa. Oogie Boogie's death is cool and also very, very fast because he just, he gets his sack ripped off and he's a pile of bugs underneath and he falls apart. But the animation is very cool. Then Santa does his thing and lays a finger aside of his nose and flies up out of the underground jail and flies around the world to save Christmas and set things right. It's easy to imagine an inverse version of that, like Santa trying to make things spooky, but just making it lame and cheery. And then 
in comes Jack Skellington, able to like make everything creepy and macabre on a moment's <laughs> notice, you know? <laughs> right. This is their thing. And then Santa comes back from his mission to spread a little genuine Christmas joy in Halloween Town. And it's like, finally, now the other inhabitants of the cave can see the light. And they finally, like, understand, oh, okay, this is how it is supposed to be. And I kind of wish this was more of the point of the movie. It's almost like a, a grace note on it. But, like, the fact that Jack ultimately did bring some Christmas cheer to Halloween Town and to the people around him is a really nice touch, I think. It's like he managed to, to stay true to himself and his community, but bring in a little bit of that which he experienced in the wider world with him. I like that idea. I feel like it's not quite as central. Like the more central thing is he he screws up Christmas and realizes he should be back at home, you know? Mm -hmm. What I really liked about this moment, which is only like 30 seconds maybe on this watch, is that it has a little mini medley of reprises of mm. tunes from earlier in the movie that are all kind of interwoven, including a major key version of This is Halloween. It's like la 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 la. Oh, interesting. And it mixes in several of the other tunes too. It's almost like at the end of Scrooge 1970 where you get all the dark anti-Scrooge songs, but now they're in like a positive key because he's a nice Scrooge now. Interesting. Man, this score is so good. It really is. And then the other final final beat is Jack and Sally are a couple now, and they go make out on the creepy hill. Except now it's snow-covered, so it looks even more interesting. And that's The Nightmare Before Christmas, 30 years young. Bingo bongo. Boingo boingo. <laughs> there you go. And <laughs> a couple things before we get into is it good, is it bad? It's not bad. Don't worry, listeners. We'll hear what specifically we rate it. But I wanted to shout out two things that it made me think of watching it this time around. One is there's a song called Monster's Holiday by Bobby Boris Pickett, the same guy who did Monster Mash. He followed up Monster Mash with just a slew of shitty attempts to recapture that same box office magic. <laughs> like the Monster Swim and the climate mash in the early 2000s. But Monster's Holiday is essentially this. He's like doing Night Before Christmas, except Monsters plan to kidnap Santa Claus, and then in the end, Santa comes and spreads the real Christmas cheer, and the monsters are like, oh, okay, this is what it's about. So when did that song come out? I think it was the late 60s. Okay. This says 1962. I just clicked something. Okay, so early 60s, but sometime in the 60s. I also wanted to pull in a quote from 727-1978, the Garfield spiel. Oh, perfect. Let's hear it. Where he says, you can't fully immerse yourself. You don't have the light. You don't have the radiance, the radical light, the radically radiant light of truth and truth's belonging love and nature of light and loving, truthful radiance. <laughs> so what's the connection here, Brian? Well, that was the problem. The Halloween Town residents, they hadn't been brought into the light. They had to be 
brought into the light. The cat has their pipe in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So something we haven't really said explicitly. I mean, we kind of have. We've we've given it its due in some ways, but just the animation of this movie is like what makes it stand out. The overall style is not a way that you see in a whole lot of movies. Yeah, my daughter's, my six-year-old in particular, who's like, it looks so realistic, but there's so many details, but it still feels like a cartoon. And I was like, you nailed it. That's welcome to the world of great stop motion animation. And the next week we watched Coraline with them, which was on this, it's on the scarier side for them, but they still got a big kick out of it too. It really does. It just, it's something about the tactility of stop motion and like all of the details that they bring in. It's just so impressive. I, I don't know what it is. It's like in the same way that I sometimes feel like great practical effects look better than great CGI effects, or I don't know. Sometimes even like great hand-drawn animation looks better than great CGI. I feel a little less strongly about that one, but it's kind of like the same idea. Something that's made with love by hand and you can feel the handmade element of it is just makes it richer, I think. Absolutely. And two things that come to mind for me, I've heard photography and by extension, live action filmmaking described as a generous medium, meaning whatever is happening in front of the camera, you're going to get it. Even if you didn't create it or intend for it to be there. But in stop motion and other forms of animation, it's like intentionally you are making every single thing that's there. It's not going to happen if you didn't put it there. Which is interesting. It just shows that this would have taken a lot of work, a lot of people, and a lot of time. There's a great behind-the-scenes making-of featurette. And the other thing that I thought was watching it this time around, just in the super high definition that we have now with Blu-rays. And I mean, I watched it on a tablet, but it was high res. And that like in the close-ups, you can see almost like fingerprints on the people. Like mm. it just really looks like a it was physically put together. I think that's a good point is that I, I wasn't really thinking about it from that, the high def aspect, but like unlike plenty of things, particularly live action where like they keep the backgrounds kind of bland and dull. Like when you bring it up to high def, you don't notice the absence of things. You notice more things. It's like, it makes it richer because there's, it, it really is a physical thing for you to look at. And I really like the music too. Dan described it well, that listening to, for instance, the nightmare revisited album, you can get the whole story just from the music. You don't necessarily need anything beyond that except to get to feature length. Did you have a... I guess you you shouted out Sandy Claus as your favorite song. That's definitely a good pick. Yeah. I like when he's singing and, and I think you said it's called Jack's Lament when he's facing his, his internal struggle. I, I also think that... Because that's really the first time we get the first sung through feeling. And that moment always gives me chills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think This Is Halloween is probably top of the heap for me. But Jack's Lament goes up and up as I watch it. Because that's his driving 
spark. Like, is there more out there for me than just being this one note guy? Because he's the big fish in the small pond. And he's like the really talented kid who just gets A's and doesn't have to study. And is that a worthwhile use of their time even? Because like if you're never in a situation where you're challenged, are you sure you're producing the best results? And then he goes out and tries out for the football team and gets knocked around. (laughs) And he's got nothing to show for it except a bloody nose after it's all done. That's the film. (laughs) And I wanted to talk just quickly our thoughts on where do we see the legacy of this film? And and it's maybe yes, maybe no follow-ups. So the three that I'm thinking of, Dan, are James and the Giant Peach, which was Henry Selleck's movie right after Nightmare Before Christmas for Disney. Coraline, which was the feature that he did that kind of kicked off Laika. And Corpse Bride, which is almost more connected to the whole mishmash than I even thought because I didn't know Selleck was involved and that it was like a proto-Lyca project. Uh, Have you seen these? Which of these have you seen? I've only seen Coraline of those three. It's possible I saw Corpse Bride around the time it came out, but if I did, I don't really remember it. But definitely Coraline. And I think that one is like just a hair's breadth short of a masterpiece. I think that one's so good. I loved it when I saw it around the time it came out. And I I think when I watched it last week, it was the first time I had seen it since like 2009. And it totally holds up. It's so good. I agree. Coraline is the best of the bunch. Uh, I need to watch it again. I have the 3D Blu-ray that I haven't watched. Definitely do to check it out again. Just from my memories of it, I would give it a six, but it would probably climb if I watch again. I definitely have it in a a seven territory for for Coraline. But I would say another aspect of the legacy of The Nightmare Before Christmas is that it has kind of become an emblem of like the creepy aesthetic that I think has become more acceptable since this film came out, more uh, culturally understood. It's like goths, for example, like when they became a thing when we were in high school, Brian. That's exactly the wording I was going to use. It's it's our high school days. It's the mid-2000s. Suddenly there was this explosion of the Nightmare Before Christmas fandom and also goths. And that seemed to all be kind of intertangled. Like, I'm sure there were goths who didn't embrace it. And people embraced it who were maybe not goths. But it was like a bubble in time. It was... My brother and I like to joke that everything happened in my life in eighth grade. (laughs) And so this was what, this is another example. And I think in general now, like, I don't know, maybe I've just like connected with it more. It very well could just be like a personal perspective, but like compared to when I was a kid and even when I was like, I don't know, middle school, the leaning into spooky season and creepiness is much more just prominent, I think. You see it more places and there's more of a cult around it. Some people have described this as like a cult hit. And to me, it's kind of like Big Lebowski where you probably could have called it a cult hit at one point, but now it's like everybody just knows it's good. That's like all it is, you know? It's just a good movie. Right, it's it's out there. It's suffused the culture. It's a known good thing. 
So what does Abraham Lincoln say? It is beyond our power to add or detract by what we say here. We cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow the nightmare before Christmas. I also wanted to briefly talk about these other two, though. So James and the Giant Peach, I haven't seen in a long time. It's really weird. It's a mostly live action, or there's a lot of live action anyway. And the stop motion is like intercut. It's kind of like the page master in the sense that a kid starts his reel and then something happens to him and he's in this animated realm. Oh, interesting. I thought it was all stop motion. I didn't know that. No, a lot of it is live action. And it's a it's an adaptation of a Roald Dahl story. But the Jack Skellington puppet, like the actual puppet itself, shows up in the movie and has like a scene. Oh, it's like cool. one of the obstacles that they encounter is Jack Skellington is like a skeleton pirate that they, they have to get away from. So it's visually it's similar. I, I would have to watch it again. But I don't remember it being a must-see. I'd probably give that one, like, a four. I have never seen it. I'd definitely check it out, though, at some point. And then, just in the last couple days, I watched Corpse Bride. Which is, yeah, marketed as Tim Burton apostrophe S Corpse Bride on the poster. And in some ways, it's like Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, it's got music people singing and i think the songs are by danny elfman but it just doesn't have the magic it's just not this the songs are very like recitative which there's some of that in nightmare but another thing that it had is so in that movie it's got characters going back and forth between the world of the living and the world of the dead and the world of the living is in very nearly black and white. Like, the colors are almost entirely desaturated. And then you go to the world of the dead, and it's super saturated. Oh, interesting. But we didn't spend enough time in the world of the dead. Like, a lot of what's happening is in the living character's space, and it's, like, very drab. But I thought uh, Johnny Depp was good in it. He played the the main guy, of course. And then... One of the love interests, the corpse that he finds himself married to, is Helena Bonham Carter. And if you go on Letterboxd, all the top comments are, Oh, Emily got cheated. That's the corpse bride. Like, he should have stayed with Emily. <laughs> and it's like, now not to encourage necrophilia, but dot dot dot. <laughs> um, I liked Victoria better. I liked the I liked the girl who was alive, just for the record. <laughs> Hot take by Brian. Prefer romantic partners be living. <laughs> but the, the, you know, the animation was really cool. And um, the character design was creepy. Like, Emily has, like, one of her legs, the uh, the bones are out. And her skin is around her ankle like a, like a loose stocking. Oh. It's really ooky. Um, and like, you can see through one of her cheeks, like, so when she makes expressions, you can see the teeth inside there. So I guess what that one has going for it, it was actually directed by Tim Burton right around the same time as like Sweeney Todd. And so just for anybody who said that Nightmare Before Christmas, oh, Tim Burton's not involved with that. That's not really Tim Burton. Like you can see it. It's Tim Burton is definitely in Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. Agreed. So, Dan, did you have anything else you wanted to say, or are you ready to dig into whether or not this movie is good? I think I'm ready to rate. So, is it good is our signature section 
where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I will go first, is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, directed by Henry Selleck from 1993, scored by Danny Elfman, good. This is a little bit of a, a head and a heart scenario. My head says that the writing in this bothers me a little bit more every time I watch it. It's a combination of kind of slight, but also like padded, like there's stuff there. What this really should have been is it should have been a 45 minute TV special, 45 minute without commercials. So like an hour long TV special, because then you could have had really focused the story a little bit more, cut out some of the fat, focused on the best parts of the story, which I think is kind of the opening, and then some of the fun of the apocalyptic ending. That's my propose if you're going to go back and make it, because they're really struggling to get this out to 75 minutes, which is already a really short feature, you know? And I think the seams in it show from a writing perspective. That said, this is maybe the ultimate vibes movie, like out of all movies, just the sheer holiday melancholy spookiness, but also like intertwined with this longing for more. I saw a review somewhere. It might've been on Letterboxd. Someone saying this is like the ultimate movie to dissociate to. You just kind of sit there and let it wash over you and feel the vague feelings without thinking too much about the story. And I agree with that. It's, it's, it's so good to look at. The, the score by Elfman is absolutely incredible. Just iconic character designs, really terrific spooky mood stuff, especially the opening 15 minutes, but even but all the way throughout. And it goes so quick that you can't be too bugged by any pacing issues, you know. My head says this is very good. It's a six. But I think just because it, it does the vibes better than any other movie, at least this kind of vibes better than any other movie, it's a seven for me. It inches into exceptionally good seven out of eight territory. What about you, Brian? I'm right there with you, Dan. I kind of feel like maybe the hour long TV special is how Tim Burton envisioned this. Like it, then it would fit alongside the Rankin Bass specials, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Year Without a Santa Claus and all of that. And of course, those are also stop motion. I like this movie quite a bit. I'm going to give it a seven out of eight an exceptionally good and there are things about it that I like a little more each time and things about it that I like a little less each time. Something I noticed going back to animated movies from my childhood is that they go by so fast. Like, just the, the plot progresses rapidly. And then I look at the back of the box, it's got like a, an 80-minute runtime, or in this case, even less than that. And a lot happens in that time, and there's songs which eat up part of the runtime. Like, I go back to the Disney's Robin Hood that I watched all the time as a kid, and it's gone in the blink of an eye. And I guess when it's new to us, it takes longer, because we don't know what's going to happen. But once you've watched an 80-minute movie many times, you you want to be able to immerse yourself in that world a little bit more, and kind of feel cheated when it's when it's gone so quick but i guess that has added to its staying power that just that there was not a sequel unless you count that game boy advance kingdom hearts game that had a level that continued the story 
honestly, the poem continues the story a little bit because like they run into Santa and Jack run into each other down the down the way, right? Years later, something like that. I remember there's a little more of a coda to it, but it it, it says like it does have a little bit of Christmas gets brought to Halloween Town or something like that too. But yeah, but the animation is amazing. When we talked that thing you do. I said that a lot of my reason for giving it a high rating was I felt like they broke the mold after they made it. Just that there aren't a whole lot of movies that look or feel like that. And it's especially true in Nightmare Before Christmas's case. So seven. Exceptionally good. Cool. Well, I'm glad we both like this one. It is a great one. It is definitely recommended. And I guess that brings us to what we will be discussing next week. And for the first time in a bit, we're going to have a guest on the pod. It's our old friend Gargus for maybe their fourth visit to the pod. Yeah, I think so. And we will be discussing the film Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which, of course, is interconnected with William Shakespeare's Hamlet. And I have actually never read nor seen Hamlet, Brian, so I'm going to be watching at least one Hamlet adaptation before I watch this. Because uh, I feel like I might be missing some something otherwise. Okay, well, for whatever reason, my friend who runs the Plex server that I've been watching all my new movies on just added every version of Hamlet that's been released as a movie. So if you want to throw one of those on, I can watch it. Okay. I've, I've watched so far the Ethan Hawke version and the Kenneth Branagh version, but both of those were back in high school. And I've read the play. I started watching the 1948 one. So I was like, oh, I'll start with the classic. Little did I know Lawrence Olivier cut out Rosen <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from that. So I don't actually have an introduction to those characters. But I'll probably finish that. And if I can stomach it before we record, I'll watch the Branagh version too. Because that's like four and a half hours or something like that. It's the entire text. But I, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Hamlet with Gargus. So this should be interesting. Okay. Well, until next time, listeners, thanks for tuning in here on The Goods. Hope you're not too holiday-starved in this middle era. You can already turn on the radio and get those carols. Bye, Brian. Bye, Dan. Bye, listeners. Bye.